Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com In the unplugged style of our podcast, we are recording and... um Shall I say who we're talking to, Jeff? Yes, yeah, so why don't you explain? It's a special chatter, isn't it? I mean, we it? are in the presence of BBC electoring royalty. I think that's the only way of putting it. Don't yeah, you think? Some, yeah, I mean, a, a, basically, upholder of Rethian ideals. I mean, basically, Bertrand Russell, he wasn't available. <laughs> Robert Oppenheimer, he wasn't available either. Michael Sandel, he might have been available. Stephen Hawking, he sadly wasn't available. These are Reeth lecturers and... It, it blew me down, knocked me over with a feather. Ben Ansell, my friend of 20 years, my former teaching assistant. Your former is, teaching assistant. Is, is this, we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, <laughs> oh, bon pal, uh, Is this year's Reef Lecturer. And, oh, well, last year's Reef Lecturer, actually, because we're this is going out in the beginning of 2024. And we are honoured to have him, aren't we, Jeff? On the Absolutely. Podcast. Congratulations on being part of a long line of illustrious names. Thank you very much. Well, well I'm delighted to be on to be on this podcast and, and to see old friends and new. I um, I have to say, when I was asked to do it, um, what did I you did think? Feel, well, so how did it I come? Mean, is it like the Nobel Prize? You just get a phone call in the middle <laughs> of the night or something. I actually I got a text from the from the head of Radio Four, Mohit Makaya, saying, "Ben, it's Mohit, let's do it." <laughs> the reef, I mean, and then that was it. And I wow. thought, "Wow, this is such a clever prank that someone has played on me," because they would have to know the concept. And then I realised it couldn't be a prank. Uh, it but took Mohit on. a while, I think, to get back to me after I texted him back. So, <laughs> so for a while, for two hours, <laughs> I was in ever, the limbo. Had you ever had a discussion about this? I had yet. So oh. I I had gone down and I'd met with the BBC. Uh, well, the head, the head commissioning editor for Radio 4, as you know, is Hugh Levinson, who's a wonderful man. Um, and it was, I think it was commissioning season as well. So he was very busy, but he'd asked me to come down and I thought he was going to talk about Book of the Week because I'd written this book, right. uh, Why Politics Fails, and it had come out maybe a month earlier. Uh, but then it became clear it wasn't that, but it but what it was was not very clear. So I thought we were talking about some so other being kind interviewed. of show. You were being interviewed for mm. something, but you don't know what you're being interviewed for. Is it, is it exactly. like Taskmaster where you can't put yourself forward <laughs> for it? Because if, if you do, they will never consider you. I'm sure that's the case. So this morning, I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote my final kind of Twitter thread on this. And I said, when I asked to do the Reef Lectures, and then I realised that that should have read, when I was asked. Because <laughs> you, can't, you, you don't get to ask unsolicited. So, and so what, was the first, what was the first inkling you had that it might be the big banana? So I, so I, went, I went from a lunch meeting with you and a guy called Jim Frank, who is the producer of the Reef Lectures, but of course not knowing the exact production teams associated with every major BBC series. I didn't realise that. Uh, and so I guess they've been sounding me out. And I did think it was a bit like when your parents get divorced and you realise that your <laughs> mum 
wasn't actually staying with her sick friend. <laughs> there, was, there was another conversation going on. Um, so so then, then I went down again. I got an email basically saying, could you think... I, I, I kind of came up with a pitch. I sent it, sent it into the BBC and they said, um, that all sounds great, but could you come and talk to the head of Radio 4? And at that point, I was like, okay, that sounds exciting. Does he directly commission these things normally? But I prepared and I spoke to to a colleague, David, David Levy, who uh, used to used to do analysis for Radio 4 to say, OK, David, what on earth do I do? But but he also had not twigged what this would be. I went into the office with Mo here and he said, well, I brought you here under slightly false pretenses. We're thinking about you for the reef lectures. Oh, my God. And then what, I, did you, my... what did you think at that point? I thought, how it's am I going to It's a case of get mistaken identity. Through this conversation <laughs> without screwing this up. Um, you know, okay. I suppose when a moment like that happens, you think, okay, well, how do I pitch what I would do? Uh, and I had just written a book with five big traps, five big topics. It became clear in the conversation that I wasn't going to get five reflectors if I was asked to do it. So I had to think about, okay, well, what will I talk about? And then where would I want to do them? Um, so obviously, you know, I manifested the dream by starting to say, well, if I, if I was to do security, I'd like to go to Berlin. And, and uh, that, that happened. Uh, I did also say Istanbul, but I didn't get Istanbul, so that's that's a shame. And then, yeah, I sort of pitched my way through it, and I mean, I mean the whole it, thing was mad when I left the room. I just, you know, all academics, I'm sure, are used to imposter syndrome, but this is imposter syndrome final boss level. <laughs> right there, it's impossible to imagine that you're not an imposter, and I, and I certainly am. If you look at I mean, the the illustrious the, list, I mean, the thing is, Ben, it must have been almost as exciting. As becoming my teaching assistant in 2003. So, well, you, I mean, it is pretty. I mean, you know, it's, it's a close. It's a toss it's up. A, it's a close run thing. T- tell me, you tell only me, get one of these things every two decades. Exactly. 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 T- tell me about this. What is the connection then, Ben? So what, basically, I was at Harvard as a uh, visiting fellow for a year. I was sort of in kind of Gordon Brown rehab um, for eighteen months, um, and so I'd been there a year, and then. You know, it's always normally quite restrictive about who can teach at Harvard. Um, but I was at this centre, a place called Centre for European Studies, and a very nice man called Peter Wall ran that centre. And I said, well, I'm interested in teaching a course. And uh, he said, OK, I'll see what I can do. So he talked to the head of the politics government department, who was very nice and open about it and thought it might be interesting. And then I did a, and I did teach this course, which is called What's Left? Uh, I think it was called What's Left, The Politics of Social Justice. And I did something which people don't normally do at Harvard, as I later discovered, which I put up lots of posters around the thing as a sort of marketing device with pictures of Karl Marx, Tony Blair... I think it was just Karl Marx and Tony Blair. Karl, Karl I mean, Marx, right. Okay. Classic then, combination. Did you draw the pictures, Ed? <laughs> I didn't know, thank goodness. Uh, and so we went to the first... Thing, which I thought it was going to be a seminar of like 10 or 15 people. And there were there were like 180, 150, 180 yeah. people there. And so I suddenly thought, oh, my goodness. Now, remind me, we had, we met before this. Yeah, so so um, I'll, I'll see if I can flesh this yeah. out slightly. So Ed and I had, had been in a class together. We'd been in a class, oh, yes. a, rather, a slightly technical class on politics and economics that uh, a couple of um, Harvard professors, Torben Iverson and Jim Holt, taught. Oh yes, Torben and Torben and Jim, and yes. it was, and I met Ed there. So we we knew each other. But you had said to me you were wanting to do this course, 
And I, being a hustler, um, that's maybe you can't be a hustler. That's all right. Yeah. Showing some hustle. Um, <laughs> Was, was needing work. I was needing to be a teaching assistant. But at Harvard, you don't know, and this gets to Ed's point about the, the flyering or the postering, you don't know how many people are going to show up. And, and that doesn't really matter that much for Ed because he's going to teach the course either way. But it does matter for this sucker here who was only going to get employed if a certain number of students uh-huh. took the class. So the postering was enormously successful because Ed ended up with five times as many people as he thought he was going to get. I really want turn. to see this poster because it seems inconceivable to me that a poster yeah. that Ed had designed would, would lead to this influx of people. It was a, it was a, it was a colour poster, Jeff. It was a colour poster. And I get, okay. you can probably guess what colour was most, was most I noticeable. Must, yeah, I, it wasn't I, blue. I don't, no, it wasn't I, blue. I don't actually... Do I have a... I don't think I've got a copy of the poster. Uh, I, maybe, I think it might be in my email somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Smithsonian might have a copy. Uh, yeah, I, I think not. But we anyway, need a library not, of records. I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, not only was I lucky enough to have Ben uh, as my um, teaching assistant, but I, but his wife, uh, Professor now Professor Jane Gingrich, was also yeah. uh, who was an expert on the welfare state. Um, was also my teaching assistant. They were absolutely brilliant. So it didn't. So how does that work? Do you have to be interviewed by Ed then? More or less. Well, we had to. We had to find other teaching assistants. Uh, uh-huh. And the good news was Jane knew more about this topic than I did anyway. So she was. She was a very easy, immediate choice. But then I think we had to find. You were the three head. That's right. You were the. I was head, a head TA. You were the head yeah, teaching assistant. I mustn't. I mustn't downgrade your role in this. No, absolutely. Uh, uh, I organised. I organised the blast. sections and the TAs. That it was, was great. It was a blast. And we used to go to this place called Au Bon Pain, which was a right. sort of prêt à manger of today, or I don't know whether it still exists in Harvard Square, and uh, to go talk about the class. I was totally yeah, out of my it depth. Was, it was <laughs> great. No, well, I mean, actually, the class the class was really good. So Ed is Ed is being cat- characteristically modest here. It was a really really fun, it was fun, but also. But it was also quite deep thinking class, I think, because you really were trying to deal with both the kind of ideological background to left-wing politics and, and the relative success of parties empirically. It's a good class. You should take it, Jeff. <laughs> I feel that what this is, that's what this last six years have been, really. Years, yeah. Yeah. Was, was, that like a, was he like a Robin Williams-style teacher? Very, you get all people standing on the desks and... Uh, it was a bit of standing on captain the Captain, my yeah. captain. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was a really good scene. The, the students... So any student who veered at all slightly to the left in Harvard, which which is basically ninety five percent students at Harvard, was interested in this class. So it was yeah, you know, they all attended. You got Robert Reich and Roberto Unger to come and give guest yeah. lectures, if I recall correctly. I mean, yeah. I quite so it was kind of an event class. Funnily enough, I quite liked having some of the conservative students there as well because I think it sort of yeah. it made it more interesting. Uh, well, and, and, and to I tell bring you what the they like. They like. I think they like the fact that I was in sort of contemporary politics in a way. So it sort of made it more. Was it? They, there's at Harvard. There's a Kennedy School, which is very much has lots of people who have been in contemporary politics. But then Harvard undergraduates less. Yeah. Harvard undergraduate curriculum less that. Uh, anyway, it was. It, I think it really it really helped me for politics. Actually, it really helped me for sort of speaking to an audience and. Uh, and, and, and do you remember, Ben, I think I've mentioned this to Jeff before, Joe Green. 
I remember Joe Green. I mean, the creator could, of Friendster, the I believe. Cre- the creator of Friendster who told me that Friendster was going to change the world. Friendster yeah, was, he was the, so close. He was so close. <laughs> Friendster, Friendster was the competitor to Mark Zuckerberg because it was a yeah. competitor to Facebook or the pre yeah competitor. He was, I think, a, either a roommate or a friend of Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg did not take my class. Um, yeah, but I mean, Joe, Joe Green was quite a guy, wasn't he? He was. He had, yeah, he had an incredible. He, he had this guy Sam Bankman Fried haircut, if I remember rightly. Um, <laughs> Which, which is a sign now I know of you know someone who's going to make a lot of money very quickly in their twenties in technology. Yeah, that is. Um, that is to, anyway. no, it was, and it was a funny time because it was the end of two thousand and three. So we were in the Democratic primaries just before they'd begun for the two thousand and four presidential election. So that was that was exciting as well. And there were lots of people floating around Harvard. I think Rory Stewart was floating around Harvard at that time as well. So right. I bumped into him a few times. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, this is all kind of origin story stuff. Origin story. Well, listen, should we move on? Jeff, yeah. looking at me, that look as if we should move on. Well, no, I just, I just thought it'd be good I, to I, sort of... I, I, we, I'm we, wafting we, in the sort of... I'm kind of rolling around in the sandpit of my origin story. We, we don't have to <laughs> fill in fill in all the gaps, but Ben, just to give people a bit of context, what, what, are, sure. the, what are the sort of stepping stones from being Zed's teaching assistant to giving the wreath lectures? Seamless. Yeah, you'd you'd be surprised that it's not it's not, it's not a direct it's a one defined to one career path. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I did a lot of things after that. I mean, I had to finish my PhD first, which I finished about three years after that. So, two thousand and six was the year that I finished that, and I then taught in Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota in the political science department. There's another good origin story here, which is that that's where Nick Clegg had done his master's degree. Wow, I so didn't in, know that. Yeah. In 2010, we got the wow. Daily Mail calling up for gossip on Nick Clegg. And actually, wow. there was quite quite good gossip because he was a political theorist, but we did not give the Daily Mail that wow. gossip. Um, Are you going to give so it to us that. now? No. Well, it was basically the Nick Clegg hung around with Marxist political philosophers, which you know it's, it's hard oh, to wow. actually avoid doing in a political theory degree program. Uh, <laughs> but I'm sure you know an enterprising journalist could have made something out of that. Sure. Um, and... So I was there till 2013, as was my wife. So we both both got jobs in, in the University of Minnesota. And then we both moved to the University of Oxford just over 10 years ago. Uh, and I have been back in the UK ever since. Uh, now, how that leads to the wreath lectures, I don't know. Although maybe it's easier if you're based in Britain. And you've, um, published, but you've published three books? Yeah, I published three academic books and uh, what they call in the biz a trade book, which is the, the Why Politics Fails, which is the, the book that is closest to the reef lectures. But yeah, my first book was on the politics of education, which is, as, as Ed will know, is, oh, the thing I forgot to mention is uh, after meeting Ed, I ended up interning at the Treasury. So that's another, uh, which I, I think I owe Ed for. And then I, w- I was actually a fast stream permanent civil servant for two whole weeks. <laughs> uh, I became a professor and resigned my my commission. Oh, you must have um, accrued quite the pension part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had I had a letter from the Foreign Office asking me to consider joining them, which I which I cherish. Um, but wow, I, I yeah, I worked yeah. in the Treasury and I worked on education policy there. So so that was my first interest. Then I wrote a book about inequality and democracy, and then I wrote a book about the origins of public services from the police to asylums. 
So I've covered quite quite a lot of territory uh, over the years. And, and when you get the call about the when you have the meeting and the eventual text about the wreath lectures, because the book is fresh in your mind and those are the themes you've spent, been yeah, sort of immersed in. Uh, there was there was no question that was what you was gonna what you were gonna draw on for the lectures. Yeah, exactly. And draw on is probably the right word because there's barely a shared sentence in the lectures in the book, but there are lots of shared themes. Um, so I, I tweaked fairly early that it would make much more sense to try and write something new rather than just sort of repeat verbatim things from the book and also avoided a variety of exciting contractual issues with my publisher. <laughs> so that was also good not having to think about that. Um, and what I, so the book is, a, is you know, 95,000 words for trying to explain a lot of academic work on politics to a general audience, but a reflector is 3,500 words. And not just to the kind of general audience of people who might buy books by people like me, mm. but by people who were making tea and forgot to turn the radio off or who have dropped their kids off at school and they're driving home. And so the way that you have to think about that kind of audience is, is yet another step further away from academic work. And it doesn't mean you're dumbing things down. I think you're just trying to say the same kinds of arguments differently, more lyrically. I think the, the reef mantra from the Lord himself was to educate, inform, and entertain. And, well, you know, academics are quite good at educating and informing, less so at entertaining traditionally. And so that, I think, was the hard part. Uh, and, you know, listeners can judge for themselves how entertained they are. But, you know, that's what I was going for. And how did you go about it? Was it a lot of, like, collaborating with a producer, a lot of drafts back and forth? Were you talking to friends? Um, did you consider going and doing a dry run somewhere? What, what was the actual process yeah. of putting it together? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so I did write them, you know, mostly myself, um, with feedback from a couple of old friends in particular. So a friend... I think Ed's met him before. Jack Stilgo, who is the son of Richard Stilgo, important news, brother of Joe. And Jack is the professor of science and technology studies at UCL. So he was useful for the future part of this. And then I and then my other friend Tom Edge, he's the screenwriter for Vigil. Um, and so I so Tom knows how to speak to a wider audience. So those two went over it several I times. I love I love Vigil, by the way. Very tell, good. Very tell good. Tom I love Vigil. I, I will do. I will do. Um, there's no no amusing submarine stuff in there's the research. There's a series two. I managed to get in. There's a just, series just two. just started, hasn't it? Yeah, series. there's a yeah, series. That's right. Now, now, Sergey, so you cover a lot of ground in these lectures. Uh, democracy, security, solidarity, prosperity, each of the uh, yeah. themes. This is a hard question, maybe, but just as a sort of scene setter, what? Uh, what are you setting out to convince us of in the lectures overall, as mm -hmm. opposed to theme by theme, would you say? Yes. So um, there, there, I think there is an overall theme, and in some ways, so that there is, this is a kind of Easter egg of the reflections, which is at the end of each lecture, I repeat the same four words, it's up to us, um, which is a, a little bit of a kind of mantra throughout. I mean, obviously, that's a slightly vague thing to say. So more broadly, what I'm trying to get at is, we're in a democratic, and at least in this country, economic malaise right now. Uh, a lot of people are very unhappy. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was asked to, to give the reflectors, is it's on people's minds, um, you know, both in terms of in the, the national political situation in the UK, but also more broadly abroad. Um, and what I wanted to do was to make a plea for the importance of taking politics seriously as a way of solving our collective problems, to 
you know, not come out and, and say we should all be apathetic or hope that technology can solve our problems or that politicians themselves are the problem, which I fundamentally don't believe that they are. Uh, I'd, I'd be glad to hear. I suppose it depends which politicians. Uh, and then I wanted to make a plea for the importance of our liberal democratic institutions as, as the best mechanisms we have for solving these problems. Uh, and so that's the theme you'll see throughout. Now, is that obvious? Is it too simple? Well, well, maybe, but I think it's also true. <laughs> and I think somebody needs to say it and then explain the kinds of trade-offs that, that we face if we're seeking solidarity or we're seeking security and how those institutions that we have are important for getting there. And, you know, in an era where the importance of long-standing institutions has been brushed off by lots of dare I say, populist politicians and people in the media, I think somebody needs to come and say that. I'll tell you one thing that's very striking about your first lecture on democracy, and we should talk about the, the mm -hmm. different lectures, is you, you said something which is on one level very simple, but another level might seem quite controversial, which is democracies are more successful than dictatorships. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, that, it's sort of quite striking, this, because often people think about... You know, sometimes you hear people say things like, well, you know, the Chinese, you know, they get things built, they do this, they do that. Just say a little bit more about what the sort of academic evidence is and what, what, what's yeah. your basis, basis for saying that. Yeah, well, and one of the challenges of, of doing these lectures, I should note, is for an academic who is an empirical academic, which means I do lots of tedious statistics and historical case studies, I didn't have any slides, right? You can't do a Hans Rosling reflex because uh -huh. it's on the radio. And so if you're talking about these kind of empirical questions about what do we know about how well democracies do, you have to find a way to do that in prose. Um, so the academic evidence on this, I think, is, is pretty clear. Uh, the democracies generally grow faster than dictatorships. Democracies have much, much better um, human development outcomes. So whether that's literacy or infant mortality or access to clean water, um, they also declare war on each other less often. That's a well-known fact about democracies. So if we're talking about economic issues, if we're talking about human development, and if we're talking about peace, democracies tend to win out. And where don't they win out? Well, on their ability to get things done rapidly. And, and I can understand, uh, you know, particularly if you look at British public infrastructure, why people might be tempted to want to get things done rapidly. But of course, getting things done rapidly means a whole bunch of losers get ignored. And that doesn't work so well in a democratic system, right? That's where you can do that in, in China. Um, but I think the other thing to say about dictatorships getting things done is, sure, some of them do. Sure, the Chinese and, and the Emiratis can build things quickly. But a lot of dictatorships are just disastrous, right? So you don't get any of the building stuff rapidly either. Uh, and on democracy, I sort of think... You are, I think you're a relative optimist, in other words, but I may be wrong about this, but so tell me if I am, that you, you, you don't deny that there are threats to democracy, but you are sort of more optimistic about its enduring, you yeah, know, absolutely. endurance. Yeah, Anita Anand, who is, by the way, the most amazing person to have as your kind of co-partner um so she's the real talent in all of this and anyone who's seen her live because you get to see lots of anita that, that you don't on the radio um you know, will confirm that but she often asks you know 
you come across as an optimist. You know, why should we be optimistic about this? Um, so there's one answer that John Maynard Keynes would hate, which is, well, in the long run, we've all got richer. Right? So standing back, and this is a kind of Hans Rosling answer too, I think, which is that standing back 50, 80, 100 years ago, looking at the lines, all the lines point upwards, and they particularly do for democracies. And I do begin the democracy lecture with a story about my great-grandfather, who was a shipyard uh, Plater's laborer's mate in the Isle of Wight, uh, who had to live with his father and was consequently deprived of the vote. Uh, that's only, you know, three generations back. Two generations back, my great-aunt Mo was among the first women to get the vote. Uh, so I think our history with democracy is not that long anyway. You know, it's measurable in generations, measurable in people you met in your life. Um, I, 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 I shouldn't have been so nice to my great-aunt Mo because she insisted that Ben was spelt with two N's for the whole of the... Uh, all of my life with her and she even made a little wooden a little wooden sculpture that said b-e-n-n i had to have so i don't know if she was a, was she a fan of tony ben yeah or mr ben i loved mr ben oh i thought it was just yeah. brilliant as as uh, did i um so so look there's there's that story about you know in the long run i think we are all better off but of course it's understandable that you get the keynesian critique which is well in the long run, we're all dead. And there's, there's no use in asking people to do counterfactuals with their great-grandparents and then saying, vote for us. Um, so I suppose, you know, I, I have concerns about democracy in a number of European countries and, and in the US, but I do think that those concerns were there. And Ed will remember this, 20 years ago, the America of George W. Bush also seemed like it was teetering into anti-democratic uh, but territory. Isn't, but isn't it worse? I mean, look, I... I well, yeah. I mean, it, is it worse? So George W. Bush, I think his, his, his policies were, I think, worse than, than Trump's actual policies that he managed to get through, particularly with foreign policy. But also the Patriot Act was, I think, much more authoritarian than anything Trump managed to put through trump's rhetoric and behavior is much worse right i mean the, in, I mean, the, insur the, the insurrection yeah and and i so i think if you're looking at the you know up until the last day essentially of trump's governance if you were comparing it like to like with george w bush i think i think the bush era looks worse and it's the last moment where you suddenly think well wait a second this is really really bad right election election denial is is a step beyond anything bush did of course you know, Bush won in inverted yeah, commas, yeah. Bush v. Gore, and we don't I mean, know what would have happened in the absence of that. That is true. But but don't you think that part of that is that the, there was a much stronger sense of ideology behind George W. Bush, which yeah. didn't exist. Trump's presidency and, and, and continued political career thrives on um like narcissism and that if there's a yeah, second and, term and resentment, presumably right? like revenge um yeah. is, isn't the danger to democracy the the um manipulation and uh the normalization of lying and the the tools are, that are at people's disposal with you know the internet social media and, and presumably <laughs> ai is going to come into that more yeah. in the future if if somebody with you know, a lack of scruples as regards to those things and an ideology. Um, if those two things came together, that that, that presumably would be a terrible threat to democracy. Yeah, that that I mean that that would clearly be worse—a uh, kind of clever fascist or, yeah. or a thoughtful one, as opposed to a kind of 
accidental narcissism. You know, it's the old kind of Mussolini versus Hitler comparison, right? The right. kind of narcissism and chest beating versus an actual ideological totalitarianism. So first thing I'd say about that is, and it's like the George W. Bush point, if we're talking about lying, if we're talking about the politics of resentment, if we're talking about criminal activities, there was a president not that long ago, the 1970s, who hit all of those targets, right? And uh, I'm sure lots of people wrote encomia for American democracy in 1973, 1974 about Richard Nixon, and yet you know, it bounced back. So I don't think we're in our first era of resentful politics or our first era of lying. I mean, the late 19th century is another good example with uh, the Spanish-American War, right? That was William Randolph Hearst's yellow journalism and all these faked pictures of Cuban soldiers raping American women and so on. So in a way, everything old is new again. Uh, I do think that artificial intelligence algorithms, what they do is they ramp up both the scale and the scope of the lying. So that by the scope, I mean you can do things you never could do before in the same way that the printing press allowed you to you know, write things on mass that you never could do before and then scale it out. We can both produce deep fakes and then we can send them to billions of people. And I guess the question is, will the scale and the scope make things that much worse? Or is this just the same story since Gutenberg and the printing press of rumours and lies spreading among people? But it took about a we- century after the um, popularisation of the printing press for for laws and behaviour to catch up. It became a yeah. bit of a free-for-all, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's lots of stories of pogroms in Italy, for example, that were related to to lies being sent around, like being printed out and, and distributed uh, the Bishop of Trent, I think, is, is, is the first Donald Trump of his era. Um, so I think, so one way to think about the challenge that we have right now, and I touched on this in the last lecture on prosperity, is that politicians are slowly getting their heads around governing and regulating artificial intelligence, but largely in the direction that the people who run those companies would like them to be going in, which is to think about existential risk the risk, the Skynet risk, or the risk, the what's called the paperclip maximizer risk, that yes. an AI wants to turn us all into paperclips and turn the whole galaxy into paperclips because nobody tells it in the code to stop making paperclips, right? Yes. So I get, I mean, maybe that's a real problem. Uh, I think there's a lot of debate among artificial intelligence experts about how much of a problem that is or when it would kick in. But it strikes me that as a political scientist and as, you know, the bigger social science problems of artificial intelligence are the, the direct manipulating effects we're seeing on elections for politics and the possibility of millions of people losing their jobs to AI on the economic side. Those are the things we would want to be regulating rather than having an AI summit talking about Skynet, which is where Rishi Sunak has got to. 
look, this is very, very interesting. I mean, Jeff will have heard me wang on about this before, but I think it's maybe it's sort of relevant. I want to sort of put two opinion poll findings to you, one from the US, mm-hmm. one from Britain, and just see how it interacts with your thoughts. So so there's a, there was a Pew poll in September of this year uh, asking people, Americans, what they thought of their political system. And just 4% of US adults say the political system is working extremely or very well. Now, yeah. as I, I'd looked for how many Americans thought Elvis was still alive, and I could only find a figure from the 1970s, but that was also 4%. So yeah. I think it's fair to say that... I mean, to be fair, he, he was alive for most of the 70s. <laughs> well, maybe that's, well, maybe <laughs> so that seems on the low side well, to me. Well, maybe that's true. <laughs> he, he wasn't very alive too, for much of it. No. <laughs> okay, touche. Okay, good. That's a good point. But he died in the 70s. When did he die, Elvis? 77. Oh, shoot. Seven, yeah. my, oh, man. my birth year. Look, look, sorry, it was after he died for the sake of But And then the second thing I want to put you is a statistic from Britain, which Jeff has heard me say a number of times, which is when asked, do people think the country, Britain, is in steep decline, 78% of people agree yeah. and 5% of people disagree. So that means only one in 20 people in the population do not think we're in steep decline. The rest of the world don't know. Now, you know, I think one is about the political system. Yeah. And people sense that it's broken in the US. And then the the other is more probably economic. Uh, Now, I mean, this isn't like it's always been, is it? No, it's not like it's always been. I think... Um, I'm trying to, I think it was Ipsos, was it? Um, there's been something going around the internet, people showing trust levels in politicians going back to the 60s. I think it's an Ipsos estimate, but uh, I could be wrong on that, and forgive me if I am. But trust levels actually were had never been that high, really, from the 1960s onwards. So we, we they, they are in decline. But funnily enough, uh, they were quite high at the end of the 1990s and the early 2000s. Uh, and, um, you know, without turning us into too partisan, uh, an argument. I think that, that that was a period where the economy was going well, and the government of the day was relatively popular, and so on. So it, it it's not it's not inevitable that everybody will feel things are terrible, and there have been bumps. I, I wouldn't say it's a constant decline. I do think that things have got substantially worse politically and economically in the UK for the last fifteen years. I mean, we never really escaped austerity. We never really escaped the recession and the austerity afterwards. Um, in terms of our growth right? which is, as I'm sure you guys have spoken about in the podcast, it's at the lowest level since the Napoleonic Wars, which is you know, good timing for Ridley Scott, maybe, but look after the rest of us. <laughs> the, you mean um, the cost of, cost of living? Well, and, and growth... I mean, and the, the, the living standards, sorry. Rate. Yeah, growth yeah. Rate. Well, the, well, the secular rate in growth has, has flatlined in a way right. that it hasn't since right. the start of the 19th right. century. And I just think that makes so much of politics much harder because you can't use any of the benefits of growth to smooth things over so we can look back at the old mandelson line about being intensely relaxed about inequality but i think a a benign interpretation of that line is well when everybody's getting rich you can afford a bit of inequality as long as you can tax it and spread it around but when no one's getting rich then everything is zero sum and everybody is unhappy and then you combine that with our political system and i don't want this to turn into me doing a plea for proportional representation. I'm going to talk about that in the lectures, but I think it's a complicated issue. But we do have a highly centralised government 
that's quite volatile and can be run by people with 38, 40% of the vote. And so lots of people feel left out because they are left out. And so you put all of those things together, an unrepresentative political system and a crappy economy. And um, yeah, I, I'm impressed that there are 5% of people who clearly don't read the news or watch TV or step outside their house. <laughs> <laughs> they think things are going well. Uh, and what about America and the political system? I mean, that is quite scary, isn't it? Yeah, you know, so I, I, I think what's worse there, Ed, is, is, the, um, is the general level of, of what we political scientists would call negative partisanship, that people are more excited about voting against the opposition than they are for their own politicians. Now, obviously, we have quite a bit of that in the UK, too. And I, I have... Should, let me just read you through, because this yeah, poll has Americans' top description of the current state of politics. This isn't just the negative ones, but they're all negative. Uh, the biggest is div- divisive, corrupt, divisive, yeah, uh, messy, polarized, chaos, terrible, disgusting, broken, crazy, S star star T, dysfunctional, bad, self-centered, joke, confusing, sad. Yeah, it's not great, is it? It's. I mean, if, if those were the reviews of my reflex, I'd be concerned. It'll be bad. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a one-star review, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, in my in my book, in in why politics fails, the first chapter is on democracy, and I talk about this this back and forth in democracy between the twin problems of chaos and polarization. And normally, you only have one of those at a time, but America is managing to do both, which is which is impressive. Um, I do think a lot of people in in America look at the venom between Democrats and Republicans, and they find that really off putting for politics. I think it's also worth noting that the only time that that hasn't been true uh, in the last 100 years was during the 50s and 60s. And the only reason for that is because half of the Democratic Party were Dixiecrats. And so they would vote along with some Republicans to restrain civil rights. So- but, 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 but I think one of the things you're saying about America and Britain is the economy is at the root of a lot of this. And I think that is, yeah. does come through in your lectures that, you know, in a sense, the last lecture is about prosperity, but failure to either have prosperity or have it fairly shared. Yeah, the shared under- part is so uh, crucial. Uh, underlies the sort of undermining of democracy, solidarity, and also probably security too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the way I wanted to conclude the lectures was by drawing it all back together. And it was easy because I concluded with prosperity. In the absence of shared prosperity, it's very hard to solve the other problems. Um, because, you know, life being what it is, you often need money to do these things. I and mean, solidarity, definitely, because ultimately... Some of it's about feeling like one another, but most of it is about doing things for one another, and that's costly, and it's much easier to pay those costs if you have a growing economy to do that with. Uh, similarly, it's going to be much easier to stay secure if you can afford the technologies or, or the people you need to do that job for you. So so we need growth. I mean, we really need growth, and and that's why I think, you know, this this is the one thing that Liz Truss got right, right? But But only in a very very vague sense so she got the problem of of british life being a lack of growth that was true she totally misidentified the anti-growth coalition which was it turns out people who voted for Liz trust for the most part as opposed to um as opposed to the people she pointed out i don't think it's uh well i would say this but i don't think it's woke universities that are responsible for the lack of growth in the british economy so she was right about that but she didn't it seems to me, have a great plan for how she was going to counter that. And I'd imagine that some of the election, which I'm assuming is in the year that this podcast comes out, um, 
or things will be going really badly for Rishi Sunak if he pushes it till January 2025. It's going to be about creating an argument for growth and how to get there. And I think Labour and Conservative Party and the other minor parties will have very, very different stories about how you do that. Talk to us about the, uh, the, the cities that you recorded the lectures in. Yeah. So London, Berlin, Sunderland, Atlanta. Why those four cities and, and what's what's the common thread? Because on the face of it, people might think, well, there's, there's not much of one. No, there isn't. This is going to be a great niche pub quiz question in the future and only connect about these four destinations, uh, which very few people other than me will get. Uh, so London... Almost always there's a reflector in London, and it's normally the first. And here I think the BBC are being probably, you know, a little bit instrumental, which is that you want to invite lots of the great and the good to the first lecture, uh, particularly journalists, so that people will be interested and write about it later on. Um, Democracy is not a bad uh, topic for your London lecture because you can make a bunch of slightly hackneyed arguments about, you know, London and England being home of democracy, whether people buy that. Um, so then we had the other three. Now, there's normally one reflector abroad, and God knows how I managed to do two, except maybe the people in Radio 4 wanted to, wanted to go travelling. Uh, so I thought that security would be a great one to do abroad, and initially I thought of Berlin and Istanbul. And I didn't get Istanbul, so no kebabs for me. Um, but Berlin was a great place to do it. We did it in the Hertie School of Government. Uh, Hertie was this famous department store, that was uh, taken over by the Nazis because it was run by by a Jewish entrepreneur. Uh, then when the money, uh, when compensation was given back uh, in the post-war era, they, they, it was used to found the school. Uh, and it is right uh, in the centre of Berlin, you know, fairly close to where the wall is. So that was a great place to talk about security. The one thing I hadn't quite anticipated is I thought there would be loads and loads of questions about Israel and Gaza. There was one. And I'd, I'd spent a whole three-week period reading a giant penguin history of the middle east so that i had some good answers on this topic which i did not need to crack out but germans are very nervous about talking about the middle east and, and i realized that now it should have been more obvious then um so it might have been interesting in some ways to have done that elsewhere and have, have had more dissension about that and what about sunderland sunderland yeah, yeah. Sunderland, okay so sunderland was amazing i mean it was, it was i have to say the most fun one to do we had the largest audience it's 350 people the crowd were brilliant. There was great banter. Do you have um, a warm up, a warm up person, a hype man? Yeah, well, Anita. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. You die. I mean, two, two or three seconds of Anita, and the whole room is. Jeff, were you, uh, were you auditioning for this role? Well, I, I can see you. Yeah. I can Come see on. you as the reflection, the, the the kind of reflection warm up man, the sort of thinking man's warm up man. I'd, I'd yeah, go out one of those t shirt cannons that you see at yeah, American absolutely. sports games. Which absolutely. I'm, I'm guessing Anita and Anne did, did that, right? Yeah, yeah. They they just say educate, inform, entertain. <laughs> uh, that that one was good actually because it's the only one. Normally you sit in the front row and then you step up onto the stage, but this time I got to ex, you know, enter stage right. So that oh, was wow. exciting. Um, but so we so normally one of the reefs is done in one of the non England nations of the United Kingdom, and it wasn't this year. And I'd made made a big pitch to do Dundee, which I think would also mean good for solidarity, largely because I wanted to do the Victoria and Albert, where in succession Kendall Roy does the rap for his father. L to so the OG. Like, L to the OG. This is my opportunity, but I didn't get that opportunity. L to the OG. So uh, it's uh, it's Logan Roy's hometown, and there's a, there's a uh, gala dinner there for him where Kendall performs an ill-advised uh, rap. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly worth watching. And, and sadly, I did not get to do that. 
but I did get to sit on a red and white striped armchair, which was a good part of the Sunderland experience, make a bunch of corny jokes about the relative merits of Sunderland uh, Football Club and Crystal Palace Football Club, discovering that Tim Davey, who was in the audience, is also a Crystal Palace fan. So I had you know one person with me on that. Uh, and I got to meet with a bunch of sick formers uh, a couple of hours beforehand in the local school to talk about how they felt about Sunderland. And they were brilliant. And it was, it was actually the, the most fun I had, I think, during all of the reflectures is just listening to them. Because they, they had come armed with a bunch of pre-prepped questions at this school and Oxford University had sent them. And I was like, this is going to be terrible if you guys have to sit and ask me questions. Yeah. So I did what we all call flipping the classroom. <laughs> I just asked them to tell me, which is also quite lazy on my heart, uh, to tell me about you know, how they felt about Sunderland. Were they going to stay? What did they think worked well? Uh, and they were... It was depressing, right, because most of them were going to leave and they didn't think that the council had got things done right. Um, and they, you know, they felt that Brexit had been a disappointment for the region and so on. But it was also really inspiring to see a bunch of kids think so clearly through these questions mm. and have such thoughtful things to say. So anyway, Sunderland is amazing. Um, and, Atlanta, um, Atlanta, you've got, a hard, Atlanta. you've got more of a hard time in Atlanta, I'd say. Yeah, well, we had Republicans and Democrats in the audience, so that was fun because that's um, yeah, that's a level of polarization that you you don't even get in the first lecture where we're putting up Virginia Bottom League and Stuart Wood classic yeah. combination. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here yeah. I had the young Republicans and the young Democrats in the room. Um, Could you tell you know them what? tell them apart on site? Uh, yes, you can yes. because not least for the ethnicity reasons, right? Like that's oh, quite God. obvious in Georgia, uh, but also in the clothes uh you know young republicans dress like young republicans you can you can spot them from some distance off what you know what what i'll say is that they all stayed and they stayed afterwards and they participated and they did walk off in a half when i was tough on them or they were tough on me so so that was good i thought i thought we managed that and we had wanted to do well initially we were going to go and do the ed Miliband memorial tour at harvard university Uh, but um I mean, we memorial do does that. sound like I'm dead, but anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> could have done it in memorial building it. Yeah, um, yeah. Memorial Hall. Yeah. Should have done um, it in Obon Pan. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Should have done it in Obon Pan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> should have done a What's Left 20 Years does, On. Does it theme still edition. exist? Does it still exist, Obon Pan? I, 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 I fear it doesn't, actually. I think no, it's been I replaced, fear, but I'd have to check. Fear, um, so with Atlanta, ABP, yeah, so, as we used to know. ABP. ABP, yeah. yeah. Um, not to be confused with an APB, which is quite a different <laughs> Indeed. Thing. We, um, basically, my producer, Jim, thought, come on, we can't keep going to Massachusetts or New York or Washington, D.C. We fair have enough. to try and go somewhere totally a bit more fair. interesting. Totally and he enough. said Florida, and I ruled out Florida because I was not going full DeSantis. Now, but but then know, Atlanta. You could have done Mara, You could have done it at Mar-a-Lago. That would have, now, that would have been really <laughs> that would have been, uh, that would a have departure. Been something. Uh, let me ask you just one thing that in that context, which is, I don't quite know how to put this, but is it is, is it worse in America than it is here? I mean, I don't know what the it is in, in this, but, you know, I, I, do you come away from America more worried about America than worried about Britain? And one of the things that does strike me is, you know, our Trump was Johnson, broadly yeah. speaking. Yeah. Uh, and he was got rid of. Now, he might come back, I suppose, and who knows. Uh, uh, someone once said that Johnson was halfway between a normal politician and Trump. 
And yeah. you know, maybe that's right. I don't know. Yeah, I think I mean Johnson is 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 no Trump. I think they're sort of qualitatively different. I yeah. mean I know, clearly Johnson is a liar. Um and clearly has a lot of populist urges. But he also had some liberal urges in a way that, that Trump doesn't. Um and you know, part of part it always felt to me like Boris was sort of, there was sort of inside everyone there's two Borises, right? There was good Boris and bad Boris fighting one another. So every now and then, good Boris would appear. I, I'm not sure there's a good Trump. I suppose the other way of putting it is, if there is a clear election result of the next election, yeah, I think both major parties will accept the result. Yeah, but if if it's narrow, then I think we're in real trouble. Yeah, in Britain? I, I, oh, sorry, in the US. Sorry, I, I meant think... in Britain, if it's, you know, we have a system. Yeah, yeah. The well isn't the, poisoned as People much. are going to accept, well, pe- people aren't going to say, well, we're not accepting the result. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas oh, I, I in think America, it sounds really, like a really real, narrow. in, in yeah. America, it feels like a totally possibility that if Trump loses, if Trump's a nominee and if Trump loses and he loses narrowly or if he doesn't lose narrowly, who knows? Yeah, so I, I totally agree with you. I think a, an election that is where 50 to 100,000 votes moving differently in the Electoral College, which is what the, which is what the 2020 election looked like, where, you, you know, 12,000 people in Arizona, eight in Georgia, 20-odd in Pennsylvania. An election that's that close is one that Trump will claim is a fraud. I mean, uh, yeah. Regard, regardless of the gap in the popular vote, which we know is, is, well, we don't know, but in the past was, you know, Trump lost by millions and millions. So, I mean, that's actually, in, in some ways, one of the real weaknesses of the Electoral College. Um, you know, we saw it in 1960 with, with some attempts yeah. to say that Kennedy didn't win fairly, but the Republicans backed off that. This time it's it's all right. I mean, whereas in the UK, I I think we could have an we we I don't think we will have an incredibly narrow victory by whoever wins, but we could do. And if we did, I think both parties would would largely stick with it. I don't think we've gone anywhere down there. On a more positive note about America, I have to say Atlanta was a city that was clearly thriving massively. It was a city with an enormous black middle class, as, as you know anyone who's been to Atlanta will talk about. We went out to. Blues Bar with the BBC team, so you know Anita and Co. And it was the most desegregated environment I've ever been in America, maybe even anywhere in terms wow. of the bar, in terms of the groups of people in the bar. Can right? I just say, can I just say mixed race? I misheard. I thought you said I went to a Blues Bar, uh, but you actually, <laughs> what you actually, what you actually, which I thought, my goodness me, Blue, the BBC yeah, is going to no. be in trouble for this. No, uh, but you no, 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 just worry. to be clear, it was a Blues Bar a rather blues, than a yeah. Blues Bar. Yeah. Well, Rather than a blue and, spa. and we all paid for our own. We no, all no, 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 right, sure, drinks. sure, sure. But I was thinking a blue spa, my goodness me, that's the yes, way you relax no. after a reef lecture. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, yes. That, that's that's how Tim Davey gets me notes exa- from listeners. Exactly. Um, no, so so in some ways, I had, in some ways, Atlanta was a good sign of the future, right? And that's why we wanted to do in it uh, to do this in, in Atlanta in terms of how a multiracial democracy can work really well. Uh, now, that isn't to say that there isn't lots of poverty in Atlanta. There is. It isn't to say that it's not a divided place. But Georgia is now a swing state, and it's a wealthy state, and those things really come out. You can see, in a way, actually, why the Olympic International Olympic Committee were excited about having the 96 Olympics in Atlanta, uh, even if that might have been a bit, little early, I suppose. Just as we come to a close, talk to us about the role of academics like yourself, Ben, in terms of your interaction with politics and and sort mm-hmm. of you know how you fa- because because as you said at the outset the read lecture is not talking to lots you know a bunch of people in 
a university. It's talking to a much, much wider audience. What what does it sort of make you think about that whole question of the role of academics, you know, yeah. in relation to well, politics? And especially especially academics who study politics, right? Because it'd be very easy for us, given our subject matter, to turn everything into our own manifesto. Uh, and I, I think if you do that, you lose a lot of credibility with a broad audience. And I've always tried with this work. You know, I don't disguise the fact that I support the institutions of liberal democracy, uh, but I try not to push too far in one direction or another because I, I want people from across the political spectrum to listen. And I, and I want them to understand that political questions are really challenging. And that actually, in my view, and I get this also from talking to people who work in the lobby, is that most politicians the political, in Westminster... This is the political yeah. lobby, political journalists. Yeah, yeah, political lobby. So most politicians in Westminster are actually good eggs. Now, I mean, there are, there, are some, there are some bad eggs, but most people go into the, into the job because they are committed to public service. And most politicians realise, although they can't always say it out loud on TV, that there are trade-offs to all of these decisions. But if politicians don't... If it's not easy to not hold the party line in an interview, then somebody like me who studies the topic... I have the liberty at least to, to say, okay, here's how I see the trade-offs we have to make if we're talking about funding the welfare state or we're talking about combating climate change. So that's a responsibility that, that, that I get to have, um, but I have to take quite seriously and not turn this into, you know, here's, here's what I think about the world, vote for me, uh, because I'm a political scientist, not a politician. Uh, what keep, finally, what keeps you optimistic? Um, well, listening to a podcast that is you know, designed to make people feel optimistic, uh, of course, <laughs> available wherever you pick up your yeah. podcast. Uh, look, I feel optimistic because I think for the most part, we do solve our problems as as a species and certainly as a country. You know, we can look at some, there are, there are some really encouraging shifts that have happened in this country, even in a particularly bad political time. Right? We had four chancellors in a row who were ethnic minorities and the first ethnic minority prime minister. That's an achievement. right? It's not an achievement, by the way, that we all shout about. And it wasn't an achievement lauded in the same way that Obama was in 2008. But there is a kind of slow accrual of good news that sometimes we ignore. Uh, I think, you know, we have um, a public sector that is underfunded at the moment, but is still extremely popular with the public, right? We don't have people demanding the end of government healthcare and, and those kind of challenges in the States. I think the UK remains, despite the um, egregious changes to the immigration bill, uh, a country that's welcoming of people and that uh, um, broadly celebrates its own diversity, even if that's challenging from time to time. And all of that's good news, right? If we think about the way that ethnic minorities, um, people of different sexuality, uh, gender transitioning, the way that all of those uh, identity-related issues, yes, they're highly politicised now, but it's also a much better world to be gay or to be trans or to be of an ethnic minority in Britain today than it was t when I was growing up, which isn't that long ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So we're getting there. We're still angry about things. That hasn't gone away. But on the whole, I, th I think we live in a much freer, happier world than our parents and great-grandparents did. Well, look, that is a good way to start off um, the new year, to start off 2024, uh, ben Ansel, uh, researcher. Will you, will you be available for, for the teaching assistant duties? If, if yeah, Ed, absolutely. If, Ed if, does we, do, if we can uh, get Ed to do this, to do it, to do another. What's, what's left? What's left? <laughs> yeah, twenty years, years on. Years on. <laughs> um, 
but Ben, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Your but you people can get the um, we'll put the lectures in the show notes. There's transcripts you can they can listen to. Uh, they can listen to the lectures. Well worth doing. Your book is Why Politics Fails. Uh, available all good uh, bookshops uh, outlets. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, even thank- even at Smith's at Heathrow, I discovered. So that's exciting. That is paperback ex- now. There that we is, that is next ex- to Andy McNabb, my that's, main rival. That's, ex- <laughs> that's exciting. Thanks so much for joining us, and happy new year. Thank you, guys. Thank you, and a great year to all your listeners.